curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. So, overnight, who will win the World Cup of Football? Why should you want to know? Don't you mind about the future? Okay. Uh, John Dippick, up next, Letter to America. Strap yourselves in. He's wound up. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. What? This guy is telling us it's better for you to shut up. Shut up. Uh, my blue gram off the sea. You did. <laughs> <laughs> you at home. <laughs> All right. Uh, hi, John. How are you? Good, Graham. Very well. On a all wet, right. soggy day, but, you know, it was a pretty good day today. I, I kind of like all that water. Oh, I love it when weather decides to do something. Yep. Uh, I suppose not that flash if you get your house flooded out and things like that. But, no. um, you know, we, we feel for you. But I still like it when weather gets up and does something. Yep. No, I like it. I like it. It's raucous. Yeah. All right. Um, we were talking about Dwayne, Americans. You think Dwayne Johnson's some type of genius? Well, not a genius. It's just that the guy's a hard worker. You know, Dwayne Johnson, the rock. Yeah. I smell what's cooking. I smell what's cooking in the kitchen. And that's he used to be a, a big-time wrestler. Oh, yeah. And then he went to movies. And then once he got into the movies, they always put the rock with his name. But then he got so big that they stopped the rock and put Dwayne Johnson because he was, you know, he really tapped into Disney. He didn't the, need the rock. He didn't need the rock. He, you know, he worked in, and just got his own name. And now I see that um, he's hugely popular in Hong Kong and China. And that's that's the next burgeoning market. I mean, you know, Hollywood really goes to that. And he, he's so well-liked in China. In July and August, they stopped foreign showings. And they only show locals. Kind of interesting, huh? They only show local movies, you know, so mm -hmm. people, you know, can see the local content. Mm -hmm. He's the only guy that has a movie uh, skyscraper in that period of time because I love him there because he spends a lot of time there. And I just think, you know, he, he's smart that he, he works it. Mm. You know, he spends some time. You know, and when I, you know. Well, he, that's astute, isn't it? It's astute. But it's it's marketing it's marketing isn't it? yeah and we do it a lot and we we look askance sometimes you do you at, at people that are doing marketing we just think it's a little undignified maybe yeah you, you, you do i mean when i first the very first day that i got here in new zealand in 1980 january 17th 445 never forget it uh, a guy picked me up and i was flying down to napier the next day and he was just asking me about stuff and i had my briefcase with me and I gave him my resume. I said, well, here, here, here's my stuff. Here's, here's what I'm all about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he thought that was really odd. He goes, you carry your resume around with uh, you? <laughs> yeah. I go, yeah, yeah, in case somebody wants to know something or I get a chance to hook onto something or yeah. whatever. Yeah. You know? And I was talking to a guy in a cafeteria down in uh, a cafe down in, uh, in, uh, on the quay there. Yeah. And he was saying he was aghast that um, uh, the Hoff, you know, the Hoff came in and uh, from Baywatch. Oh, yeah. You know? And uh, some guy, <coughs> excuse me, some guy wanted his autograph, and he flipped open his briefcase and took out a glossy and signed it for him. <laughs> you know, got to be ready, got to be prepared. <laughs> Far out. God bless America. There you go. Get that PR machine going. Okay. <laughs> Mark Richardson has fallen into Trump's trap. Oh, yeah, this is great. This is great. I love this, you know. Um, 
you know, like a lot of people, like you, you say, you know, you can't berate him all the time and you can't yell at him because, you know, then people will start feeling... Not for stuff he hasn't done. You do what he has. Yeah. People got, you know, they... they and this is what Richardson said this mm. week. He goes, they don't like him. I don't like him. He's a buffoon of a man. But I'm telling you now, I'm getting driven more and more closer to this guy because of the behavior of those who just want to undermine him at every step of the way. Mm. Well, hey, Mark, okay... It's not, it's not the reporter's behavior. It's his behavior. No, but if the reporters um, are being, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a national, it's a sport. It's a global sport okay, now okay. To, to make fun of Trump. And if they do that too much and... It, they, and don't, it, they don't make fun of Trump. They report the facts. Yeah. They report what Sometimes he does. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes okay, they don't. Okay, okay. Okay, and, and that and that can drive people. Okay, for, that's what Mike, Mark's talking for about. For you and Mark, no bullshit. Yeah, it is bullshit. That's how you make bullshit. He's that's talking. How, you want more right wingers? That's how it's going to happen. No, no, not at all. Not I at don't. All. Not at all. This is for you, and this is for you, Mark. Let's just look at his uh, European trip. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he goes over to NATO. He attacks everybody. Attacks the whole NATO. Threatens to pull out. Threatens the United States. This is an organization. This it's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was started in 1949 after the war to protect them against Soviet aggression. And now it's Russia aggression. Aggression, and it's been going for 70 years. It's a strong alliance, and now Trump wants to go in there and disrupt it. Who else wants to disrupt the NATO alliance? Putin. He'd love to see it dismantled. Just calm down. So he attacks everybody. He says they all owe him money. Yeah. They don't owe money. That's not the way it works. Trump is a moron on this part. Threatens to pull out. Then he attacks Angela Merkel. Yeah. All right? He attacks Angela Merkel. He says, oh, you know, you guys are beholden to Russia because you're getting gas from them. And naturally, again, he lied or didn't have his facts straight. He said, you're getting 70% of your gas. They get 9% of their gas. And they got a gas line. Everybody works with everybody. It doesn't make any difference. But he attacked her and said, you're controlled by Russia. Angela Merkel grew up in the East Berlin. So is he pro-Russia or anti-Russia? You have to swap both, sides. Both. He's, it doesn't really matter. That doesn't does really it? matter. To whatever him. is in the top of his so head. So he attacked. But Angela Merkel grew up on, you know, in East Germany. Yeah. So she knows what it's like to be aggressive under the thumb of the Soviet Union. She came back and told him that. Yeah. All right. But he he attacks her. Then he says, the next day at a lot at a at a press conference that he fixed everything with NATO and it's all running like a smooth machine now and they're going to put in more money. Immediately after he said that, the French president, Macron, mm. he came out and said, no, that's not true. We're, we're on the same things that we were before. That's that's a lie. That's not true. Okay, so you're going to report on all that. Now, we'll go on with this. Then he goes to England. He throws Theresa May, the prime minister there, totally under the bus, right off the bat. Says she's soft on the Brexit negotiations she's with. He would do it a different way. If she goes the way that she's going, no trade, no trade. U.S. and Britain trade, forget it. We're not doing it. Then he attacks the mayor, a con, calls, you know, calls him a shit mayor because of all the terrorist activity. Then he says, oh, and by the way, Boris Johnson, he'd be a much better prime minister, much better. That'd be like Theresa May going over to Washington, D.C. and saying, oh, Bernie Sanders, hell, he'd make a great president. This guy's an idiot. All right? Then the next day, the very next day, Mark, you got to report this shit because this is the shit that happens 24-7 with this asshole. The next day he goes, no, I didn't say that. It's, I, I heard the auto recording. It's on audio. It's there. He said it. And he stands up there in front of everybody. He goes, no, that's fake news. I didn't say that. That's fake news. 
What do you? What, I mean, he's, which bit were they saying he said that he said he, he didn't said say? that he didn't he didn't say anything about uh, about uh, Theresa May. Uh -huh. He didn't say anything about Brexit. He didn't say anything about the trade. Oh, that's right. That's when he said, "Ah, oh, whatever you want to do, yeah, whatever you want to do, however so, you want to so, do it." Yeah. So, so he's yeah. he's you know he he called effective. He's nuts. He's totally nuts. Okay. He's nuts. So but, then, but on the that night, way, then the, he's also a racist. Okay. All right. He yells at all the immigrants. He tells Europe and he tells you, you're letting in too many immigrants. And they're changing the culture of Europe in a very bad way. Totally racist remark. Then he goes over to Scotland and he says in the, in the next interview, I was here cutting the ribbon at Turnberry and I predicted Brexit. I predicted it the day before. Lie, lie! It's in the papers. It's in the news reels. He was there the day after. After it was, you know, just total lies. And then, come on, we got to keep going here because this is the shit that goes on every single day. His behavior, not the reporters. His behavior. He f tells 15 lies on average a day. Then he says in this interview, since I've been president, you know, the GDP. You know, the, I don't know. I don't think he knows what it is. He says it's doubled and tripled. That's your gross domestic product. For a gross domestic product to double, it takes 20 years if all goes well. And to triple, it takes 30 years. I mean, it is just ridiculous. And Mark says, oh, what about all the good things he's done? You know, he's done some good things. What has he done? What has he done? He's gotten out of NAFTA. He's gotten out of the Paris Climate Agreement. He's gotten out of the Iran deal. He's imposed tariffs. Which no, we've, got... we found something good he did, didn't we, one week or something? Yeah, but the thing is, you gotta you got to fling and search for it. Mm. And it's not his, it's not the reporter's behavior. I think just the opposite. I think the American press is way too nice to this bastard because they got some kind of priority, you know, you know, proper behavior about interviewing the president. Only because he holds that office do they defer to the... I mean, you Outside want... Outside of Fox, I haven't found anyone being nice to Trump much at all. Oh, shit, are you kidding me? No. If I was standing there in the press room in the, worst, in, the, in the White House or listening to him talk about this and that and lying, uh, I would call it out. That's a lie. That's not true. Right. I'm fact-checking you right here, right now. I think they, that they're caught in the culture of what a press conference is supposed to be supposed with the president. To be. And but, he but doesn't, it's not like that anymore. <laughs> it's not like that at no. all. He doesn't do it. Richardson, this guy is a racist He's a misogynist. He's an absolute pathological liar. He's a bully. He only does this shit because he's got the power of the United States behind him. That's the only reason this asshole gets away with that. He's a man with zero morals. And if you are drawn closer to him because of that, you're a buffoon. Mark didn't say that. It was That was something else. What? He was What Mark was saying was that um, shrill reporting about Trump puts him off. That would would draw him closer to Trump than well, he's put, a him, put him off. He's a buffoon. Because now, I don't regarding think it's now regarding immigration in Europe, it's I, not all beer and skittles. It's, no, it's not. It's, it's bloody difficult. It's Sweden difficult. is suffering enormous problems. Angela Merkel Sweden's herself. Sweden is suffering a lot. I don't Angela Merkel herself Sweden, said like it, it was a it was a big mistake. It's just 
there are a lot of pressures on Germany for that, and so it's not necessarily a racist position. No, nah, problem, no it's problem. racist from him. Yeah, you yeah, go back. Oh, why? You go, you why go back you to 1972 that? when he refused to uh, rent his apartments to black people. You go all throughout the time. You go through the fact that he called a a, a Mexican judge. You know, he was Mexican. Okay. You know, yeah. you go through that he called Mexicans rapists. He's he's. Okay, you if he talks about the immigration. Yeah, he, well, he may immigration. Have a, that might, might be a different thing. Okay, nah, but that's I, racist I, to say that. Okay, all you're, you're connecting the two. That's all. That's racist saying, to say all immigrants are are destroying the culture. He didn't of say the all immigrants. He said immigrants. He yes. said immigration. That's immigration. all to me. Yeah, and, that's uh, all and to Angela me. Merkel has said the same thing. Nah, no, she hasn't. She said it was a mistake. That well, that's might be, but she didn't say it was changing the culture and, <laughs> in a negative way. Okay, we'll move on. An interesting <laughs> tidbit. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is an interesting little tidbit. This is um, um, this is a judge. This is a judge. You can imagine a judge saying this. This is a judge wrote a law thing uh, a couple years ago, or a year ago, I think. He, he came out with this little article in a re law review. Congress might consider a law exempting a president while in office from criminal prosecution and investigation, including from questioning by criminal prosecutors or defense counsel. He's argued that a president shouldn't be burdened by lawsuits, investigation, or indictments. That a president is, you know, he's, he's too busy. In other words, he's above the law. Now, we have a Supreme Court judge that's retiring, oh. Anthony Kennedy. And Trump had thousands and thousands of judges to pick for his replacement. As a nominee, and, oh, what a surprise! He picked this guy Brett Kavanaugh, and and oh, here it is. Brett Kavanaugh wrote that. He wrote that a president shouldn't be burdened with investigations, no matter what he does. Shouldn't have to answer any questions. Shouldn't be investigated. Shouldn't have to go before the special counsel and ask and answer questions about his behavior. Um, I'm the Supreme Court supposed to be up on one thing more than anything else and that's the constitution what's that what do you mean and that's the constitution that's what the supreme court they defend the constitution yeah yeah that's yeah. their number one job yeah that's actually if they just did that they'd be doing their job yeah wouldn't they yeah so but hasn't it, he read the constitution the prime it, the that, president is not about the law i know but it doesn't it doesn't work that way well, what else has he done is he a fitter and turner or uh the, the, no, this no, new he's, supreme he's a, court he, guy he's a has he been in a court no no he hasn't he hasn't been nominated yeah he hasn't past Senate. Okay. You know, he's been nominated by Trump, and now you have to go through the Senate. The Senate right, has right, to vote right. him in. And, you know, the Democrats are strapped because, you know, the the Republicans hold the power. So, you know, they're going to delay it as much as possible and put this guys in the coals unless they can turn a couple of Republican votes, which they might yeah. because there are two women, and this is, you know, once again, folks, it's male versus female. You got two women senators, one from Maine and one from Alaska, and you got a thing called Roe versus Wade, which has been on the books for about 45 years, mm. which makes abortion legal in America. This guy will turn it because it's, the court is He down. can't do it by himself. No, the court is 4-4. Four, four. four conservatives, four liberals. All right. He'll be a conservative. Mm. He'll 5-4. And he'll and he'll overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, so maybe they'll hell to pay for that. Well, you know, I hey, but you know, that's what you call stacking the court. You know, so but you know, Trump is doing pick pick this guy for one reason only, because when the they Mueller, agree on something, when the Mueller investigation <laughs> subpoenas his ass, right? If it goes to the Supreme Court, which it would, 
this guy will say, oh, man, you know, you shouldn't have to do that. Right. So he's stacking the deck ahead <laughs> stacking of time. Stacking the deck. Trying to, anyway. Trying to stack the deck. I mean, we'll see. I, You know, I think the Democrats will put up a big fight, and eventually he'll get nominated. You know, because the Republicans hold the power. And they stay there forever, don't they? Uh, yeah, it's a lifetime appointment. This guy's 53, so he'll be there, you know. Uh, you know, and see what you like what on the Supreme Court. You got four conservatives, four uh, liberals, and then like Anthony Kennedy was a tweener. He voted both ways. He voted, you know, I mean, he just he voted conservative sometimes and he voted liberal sometimes. And so that's what you want. You mm. want somebody, to, you know, a court to be that way. If it's 5-4 and then there's another one, if Ruth Ginsburg retires and he can stack another one in there, you could be 6-3, and then you're screwed. I mean, you know, you talk about, I mean, this guy Kavanaugh, you know, he refused to allow uh, an immigrant young woman an abortion last year. You know, she came in, she had a baby, she didn't want it, there was circumstance, I don't know what all the circumstances was, but she wanted to get an abortion, and he ruled against it. And fortunately for her, uh, an appeals court said, no, that's just stupid, you know, she's entitled, you know, to an abortion, it's legal in America, whether she's an immigrant or not. Right. And he was, you know, so he's a very, very, very conservative guy. Mm. And the awful thing is, uh, while you're waiting for the decision, the clock is really ticking. The clock ticking is ticking, you know. In a big way. Yeah. Okay, 12 more. 12 more. Well, uh, Mueller indicted 12 more Russians this week. Oh. Yeah, you know, and this is fun. This is actually the first uh, crime. This is the first criminal case. He, invite, he indicted 12 um, Kremlin Army officers, intelligence agents, yeah. for hacking Hillary Clinton's emails and the Democratic Committee's emails. He can't arrest them because they're in Russia. They're, they're in Russia. They're, they're not Americans. They're not, they're not Americans. So no. nothing will, you know. Chinese I mean, are probably doing something similar right freaking oh, now. I'm sure there's a lot of people doing um, stuff. But it, didn't he implicate somebody at least that was close he to the... He implicated Roger Stone that's him. in it. Uh, not by name, but, uh, but but by inference. And Roger Stone has come out and said, well, that's me, because we've seen the emails that's inference in the, in the indictment. Right. And Didn't they email him and say, hey, this is really interesting. Would you like to have a look? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, what? What? Or something well, like he's a very slippery character, oh, okay. Stone. But with the 12 indictments, you know, once again, Trump said that it was Obama's fault. You know, that, oh, right, yeah, he's blaming yeah. Obama because he because wasn't vigilant enough to keep to, the Russians to, to keep out of the, the elections. Because he was in charge at the time. Well, yeah, but that'd be like saying to, you know, well, we were attacked on 911 under Bush's watch. Mm. So Obama says, well, I shouldn't go after Osama bin Laden, should I? <laughs> I should just let it rest. Wow. You know, that was his watch. Mm. But he didn't. He went out. So, yeah, I mean, Trump's an, Trump's an idiot. You know, he's a he's a very poor leader. Newsflash. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just saying. You know, but here's the here's the shoe, and this will drop, because it's it's gone. Ba 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 ba. The next indictments will be Americans. Okay, we'll see. Yeah. Well, yeah, we will. You know, and there'll be a few in there. Okay. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. At the New Zealand International Film Festival, a story about a weird thing that happened kind of in isolation in 1917, probably still somewhat the Wild West. The United States was, by this time, embroiled 
in World War One, saving a whole lot of pieces, people's asses, actually. And there was so much going on socially in the world. You can think of what was happening in 1917, not only with war in Europe, but what was happening in Russia. And the strange thing happened. This workers' union got in one hell of a fight with the people who weren't supporting them in a town. And it got to this. I had a cousin that was a miner. He lived up in Old Bisbee, and he was rounded up with the rest of the miners. They figured that it was one of these deals where the mining company was just trying to flex their muscles and intimidate them. When they brought in the rail cars, they realized how serious it was. When they were disconnecting the train, the deputized foremen were telling the miners, if we ever see you in Bisbee again, we will kill you. Cousin said he reached through the rail car and grabbed one of the deputies that he knows and held him, told him, no, Bisbee is my town. I am going to come back to Bisbee. I am going to kill your family in front of you, and then I'm going to kill you. And I believe he meant it. I have the director of said movie. It's called Bisbee 17. The town is Bisbee in southern Arizona, quite near the border. The director, Robert Green. Thank you so much for having me. To put it in a nutshell, what was the Bisbee deportation? Basically, a couple months into the Great War, World War One, the industrial workers of the world came into town and they radicalized the local union, which had sort of collapsed, the simplest way to look at it. The local union wasn't doing very much. And the tensions that already existed in town, Bisbee was known as a white man's camp for many years. Many of the people who started the mines wanted it to be an American-only camp, but instead, you know, was full of immigrants, immigrant workers from, you know, all over the place. The people who were most deported on that day were Mexicans and Eastern Europeans. Basically, the, the IWW came into town. They wanted to get better wages and better working conditions and stop the discrimination that was happening in the mines. But also they were trying to stop the war. This was an active idea that, the, that they wanted to stop the war. But when you have a war, copper prices are booming. And the town was booming at the time. So they were considered not only traitors to the country because in the zealotry of the war, but they were also fighting and, and potentially destroying a town that was now turning record profits. So the mining companies came up with this idea to round them up by gunpoint, march them to the Warren ballpark and put them on cattle cars and take them into the desert. Their idea was that they could bring them to this army camp that was in Columbus, New Mexico, about a 17-hour train ride away because they thought that they could just bring them to the army and say, these are traitors, you take them. And the army basically said, well, you've kidnapped these people. We're not going to do anything. And so instead of going back to Bisbee or something, they just backed up 45 minutes into the barren desert where there was nothing and just kicked them out and left them there. And it was a strategic plan. That basically, the companies worked with the local sheriff, Sheriff Harry Wheeler, and they came up with this plan. They cut off, you know, the phone lines were cut off. The Western Union offices were shut down. Basically, no, nothing could get in and out of Bisbee that day because they wanted to execute this plan. This isn't so well known. I, of course, w used Uncle Wikipedia and found out about this affair in Bisbee in 1917. It's well known in Bisbee like a dirty secret. But further afield, and how did you find out about it? Well, I'm, I'm actually standing in Bisbee right now because we are here for the 101st anniversary, one year 
ago we were filming the film. Now we're premiering the film here in Bisbee just in a couple of days. And I'm looking at Main Street here. I was I remember walking down Main Street in 2003 when I first came here because my mother-in-law bought a little mining cabin and we were just coming to help strip the floors or whatever. And I fell in love with the town. It's a true, strange, beautiful place. There's really not a place like Bisbee anywhere as far as I've seen. You know, I went down to the bookstore and looked at Robert Houston's Bisbee 17, which was a fictionalized version of the Bisbee deportation. I was completely startled and blown away, as most people are when they hear the story. There's a sort of secret history of radicalism in the, in the United States that rarely gets talked about, and, and 1917 was really one of those moments. And so this story just felt very alive to me, and basically I've been thinking about it for 15 years, like how I could tell the story. And finally, the 100th anniversary gave us the opportunity to come back. My original thought was maybe I can recreate it with the locals in town, which at the time was a pie in the sky. Like there's no way to actually pull that off. But then I made a few feature films and built a team up and we came back and were able to do that for the 100th anniversary. That's something to get a town to agree to because it's a bit like pulling off a scab, I can tell. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great way of putting it. Several people still talk about it as a wound that's never healed. You get a sense of that. I mean, basically, the mines closed down in 1975. And when they closed down, in came a whole group of, like, hippies and artists and lefties into this town because the housing prices were cheap and whatever. The old mining families, some of them who were involved in the deportation on the deporter side, were left here as well. So... It's sort of, even though the miners left town when the mines shut down, in, in a sense, that old tension between left and right was immediately was sort of rekindled and tends to happen as people come to Bisbee because it's a cool artist community and there's ghosts and there's no place like it. And then you're here for a few years and people hear about the deportation and they're outraged that this happened in the town that they love so much. So, so that's the wound and the scab it keeps getting peeled off again and again and again. And I think that that's what we were able to capture part of in the film. Are you too eager to ascribe anti-immigration slash racist motives? Because it seems to me ideologically, you said um, most of them were Mexican or Eastern European. I understand the vast amount were white Americans, at least 50% of them. They weren't Anglo-Americans. You have to kind of take our 2018 minds out of it no Anglo-American was deported that day. Really? So there's a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. So there's no, there's a lot of ways that you can think about it, right? But it was, there's a person in the film that calls it an ethnic cleansing. Those words might be too charged for my taste personally, but I understand exactly what he, where he's coming from. Because statistically, if you look at it, they were Germans and they were Slavs and they were, they were not speaking English when they were walking down the streets of, of Bisbee. That's always been this thing on which American sort of xenophobia gets turned is who's speaking English and who's not. Um, most of the people deported that they were able to speak English, of course, but they, they weren't when they when were at home with their families, they weren't. I mean, I think what you're getting at, though, is, is interesting because when we started the project, for me, the most interesting thing was this radical labor history that has been basically erased. I mean, in Arizona unions aren't allowed to take hold anymore and unionism in our country is like sort of collapsed most recently with a supreme court decision basically undercutting unions power to charge fees which undercuts their power entirely and that was what i was most interested in it was this labor story and trying to find a way to get a labor story across in this world that's that doesn't even understand that sort of thinking right like it's a totally different world and then donald trump was elected president and that 
sort of changed the dynamic and changed the sort of um, underlying tensions that became apparent when people were reenacting the event. So the whole film leads to this large-scale reenactment where locals in town are playing the roles themselves. Those locals in town were very much thinking about what's going on at the uh, at the border now. So the circumstances in our sort of, you know, may, like very awful political situation has changed the shape of the film and also brought out that central question because people do assume oh, when you say deportation, you must mean Mexicans were deported. And, and of course, it's much more complicated than that because there was a lot of Eastern Europeans. Yeah. But, re- but also remember that in 1917, Germans were considered traitors. I mean, they're like people weren't friends with Germans, uh-huh. you know, that it was a, and we were, we were at war, you know. So it's a, the racial component is very complex, actually. Okay, so then tell me why Sue Ray, a resident of Bisbee, uh, who features in your movie, Bisbee 17, says brother versus brother then. My name is Sue Ray. I was born and raised in Bisbee, Arizona. My grandfather came as a minor in 1915, and his brother came shortly after. My grandfather was deputized by Sheriff Wheeler and he went and arrested his own brother and put him on the train and deported him into New Mexico. Um, how, how does a brother arrest his brother and deport him? If, well, you know, what's going on there regarding xenophobia then? That, that's a great point. I mean, it's, it's, you know, he joined the strike, basically, and he was going to be rounded up that day, essentially, and his brother decided, Uncle Archie is his name, and his brother, Les, decided he was going to be the one who did the deporting because he didn't want the mob, so to speak, to take him out. But you make a great point. I mean, that that's a great example of brother versus brother. It was ideological. It was, you know, I think Archie, as far as we can tell, was interested in hearing what the industrial workers of the world had to say, what their socialist message was. And yeah. at the same time, Les, his brother, thought socialists were going to come take over. And so that was absolutely a political division. That's what's so fascinating about the deportation to me is that in this story, you sort of can parse out a history of American divisions. And there's so many micro stories within the story of the deportation that you really do get a sense of what happened in the 20th century in America. And that includes racial, you know, animus and that include, but it also includes ideological. It, it includes like, you know, the red scare and all that stuff is, is all sort of still somehow built in to this one moment. And I mean, later in the movie, Dick Graham, who was a president of the mining company, very much defends the deportation to this day as a just correct thing to do. He says something like, well, that's why in the 60s I was against the protesters. So he even makes that leap himself, you know, to the anti-Vietnam protesters in the 60s. We were on the management side of things, and the protesters of the Vietnam and, and the people who were being deported are on the other side. It's a very American thing to do, to divide us. This is what the story tells us. The actions were very much informed, I suppose, by what was going on right at that moment. Not in particular the Western Front where Americans were fighting, but what was happening in in Russia at the time. And there were many people who thought, this is a good thing, this really is. We hadn't had the test or, or the experience of Stalin or Pol Pot or Mao at this stage. It would have been... Yeah. Um, 
Why don't we give this a go? The Western Front was a huge influence, actually, because if you think there are many families who had come over from, say, Wales or somewhere else in the UK, right? And they're working in the mines. And then you have Serbians and Germans who are joining the strike to shut down the mines, who they have been convinced is, you know, will help stop the war, which means effectively stopping some families of some of the people who are here from being saved. The war was considered just to some people. It was considered completely unjust to other people. So what was actually happening in the war was a big influence. It's like, how dare you try to strike now? How, how dare you try to shut down our minds when we need copper to send them over to the boys, yeah. you know, who are dying in the front? On top of that, I mean, you bring up, you know, October Revolution, among other things, Bolshevik Revolution, among other things, 1917 was one of the peaks of radicalism across the, across the world, certainly. And mm. we didn't have the language that says Holocaust. Very few people that were deported died that day. And it, it isn't a comparable thing, but it's comparable in its mentality. And when you see those cattle cars, you can't help but think of some of the other atrocities from history where the same kinds of things were thought up. People have been abused in such ways oh, all over the place. Rounding people up and yep. throwing them into cattle cars full of manure is, is something that we, we did imagine was okay at some point, which is pretty, pretty shocking. The idea that necessity is more important than the law. I'll just play a cut. If something wasn't done, there was going to be blood on the streets. Truly, there was going to be blood on the streets. My grandfather told me that. The law of necessity. And I'm sure, although there's never been any proof, that the mining companies were only too happy to shake their head yes when somebody suggested it. Were they behind it? Some will say yes. I don't know. And to me, it makes no difference because it was the right thing to do to save human lives. It was the right thing to do in a patriotic sense to support America's first big war. And it was the right thing to do to save Bisbee. Otherwise, it could have ceased to exist. So this concept of a deportation was developed but how do you get 2,000 people to keep a secret? If they could just keep it secret, that's a clear admission that they are acting beyond the law. It's the Wild West, the sheriff. Uh, I don't care too much about the law. We're going to get them out of town. The word necessity is a powerful word, right? So necessity means it's actually needed, right? The law is inadequate for the moment. That sort of thinking that necessity can be above law has led to so many different tragedies. Remember that at the time, just to put it in some more historical context, at the time there was something called the Zimmerman Telegram, which was uh, this intercepted you know, transmission from Germany to Mexico, where basically Germany said, if you help us win the war against the Allies, we will give you back Arizona and Texas, which was stolen from you, and, and New Mexico. So the sheriff legitimately thought his country was at stake, that if the war wasn't won, if copper wasn't part of it, his country was at stake. So 
that is the kind of thinking, but you can see how if you convince yourself of something is so necessary that you can do anything. And that's what the sheriff did, and that's what the, 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 the companies did. This IWW, uh, this workers' movement, they were no angels either, were they? And their goal really was universal rising of the proletariat to create some sort of Marxist state. You know, influenced by Marxism, certainly. They were they're anarcho-syndicalists, what, what they technically were. So they were absolutely, of course, influenced by Marx. They weren't communists and they weren't socialists in, in the way that we tend to think of communism and socialism, right? But the IWW never committed violence, but they talked a lot about violence. Every bit of their rhetoric was blow it up. They didn't commit physical violence, but they absolutely did commit psychological violence. So they would go into department stores and say, hey, if your husband doesn't join us on the strike, we're going to blow up the store later. And how would people know that it was just rhetoric, right? Like sabotage was their you know, main philosophical rhetorical device. But they didn't back it up a lot. And that's actually weirdly partly why it collapsed, like as a movement. But yeah. they were absolutely hell-bent. If they could stop the copper production in Bisbee and if they could stop the copper production north in Butte, Montana, that it would be like a scissors that would cut off the pipeline to the war and they could stop the war. That's not necessarily what the local miners wanted out of their union. They wanted better wages and better working conditions. So it was a situation runs complex on both sides. And if a group of miners say, we'll blow you up, it's not as if you can say, oh, where are they going to get some dynamite? There was rumors that dynamite was stashed in the hills. We're as close to the wild, wild west as you can imagine. So why wouldn't they believe that? They, you yeah. know, they've all experienced, you know, all kinds of violence. Yeah, yeah, of course. Now, you've got basically an excuse for doing something that almost crosses over into period drama because you've got the locals doing a reenactment. And hell, have they got a flash director making them look good? <laughs> there's a method to that, or there's an idea behind that, which is that, to me, all these things, and I appreciate the way you're talking about these things, because all these things are about mythologies, right? They're all about sort of enacting these collected mythologies, like the mythology of a socialist revolution, the mythology of the good guy with a gun walking down the streets in the West and protecting the citizens, all these things. The way we tend to think about those is movies. We tend to think about those as Westerns, stories being told through Western iconography and in even musicals and, and other sort of genre things. So the strategy for us was to kind of create these images that make you not only see the story, understand the story, understand the real people who are playing these characters, but then additionally have you think about while you're watching, think about the way we tell these stories, thinking about the way that we present these mythologies and how permanent they are and how elastic they are. Then you start to think about the political situation in the United States today and how these same mythologies keep getting brought up again and again and again. Every time there's a school shooting or something, we, we're having the same sort of cowboy debates that we've had for 150 years. And so, yeah, we got to have some fun with creating essentially like a period drama in some ways, but the, the idea is to get you to think more about the way those images are working. In the end, after this is done and the town has watched it, is it cool? Or do you worry at all that you've seen as you're, you're not a native of Bisbee, some North Carolinian smart aleck with a bloody camera coming in and maybe did the town <laughs> harm? Do you worry about that by bringing all this up of again? Of course, and I hope that you worry about it when you watch the film. There's two answers to that. 
as I'm standing in Bisbee right now, we're going to find out. You know, we're about to show the film. We have three sold-out screenings on Thursday, wow. you know, um, and just in a couple of days. And we're going to show the film to the town for the first time. And we're going to hear, and trust me, Bisbee is a place, they don't mince words with their opinions. So we're going to hear, you caused a problem or you helped heal the town. I have no idea. And I don't pretend to know, and I don't back away from that. The good news is that I, I have been coming to Bisbee for many years. And once people understood that and understood that I actually cared about the town and I wasn't going to run away and me and the film were not going to be like jumping in and jumping out and that you know the film is part of a larger project like tomorrow we're having a whole day of discussions that we're facilitating about the issues surrounding the film and surrounding the story of the deportation so we we're investing in the town and we're coming back into the town and that's and that's going to help certainly but who knows? And that ambivalence and that sort of questioning, I want you as a viewer who will never come to Bisbee necessarily to be thinking about the whole time. I tend to be most attracted by these sort of ethical uncertainties that documentaries always bring up. Making a documentary about anybody is ethically challenging because it's almost always more using than people want to admit. And in this case, like we brought Fernando, for example, from being a, an apolitical person who seemed to have worked on his own self and he was a safe person. By the end, he's screaming, we are the IWW. And I'm not sure that that's a positive thing or not. Mm -hmm. I know it happened. I know that it was part of what we all experienced, but I want you to, to truly be thinking, wrestling with the idea of is staging this even a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know the answer. I don't think it's an easy answer. Just like the, the deportation itself, it's complex. Oh, goodness, I hope they don't put you in a rail car in the end and your crew. <laughs> the, <laughs> look, the, the past must inform our present, but it shouldn't poison it as well. That's something that I uh, was worrying about while watching it. That's a great, I, I, I love that expression. And the question is, are these things better left unsaid? Or no. is it better to dive in deeply and pull at the scab until something else happens, right? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that once we did it, there seemed to be clarity about what it actually was. It became less abstract for people. Yeah. And in this town, the deportation itself still is that injury, and it still feels like a shame on the town. And actually, we built the train car. We shut down the highway and marched across the highway. Doing that, I think people got a chance to feel what that was. I cling to that as a positive thing. In the end, we can never be sure whether it was positive or uh, more harm than good. But given the climate that we're in today, to know that this is how it felt, or at least some version of how it felt 100 years ago, and that this is something that continues today in another shape form, I think that's relevant. And I think it helps us understand. You cannot understand the present without understanding the past, of course. I think, I think we got there. What's the postscript to this? 1,300 miners deported in rail car out into the desert, effectively, eventually. What happened to them and what happened to the IWW? They were dropped in the desert and left there. What ended up happening for a lot of them is once they were kicked out of town, they were drafted and went to the war. And a lot of them, ironically, ended up fighting for the, the, you know, the same country uh, that had just 
called them traitors. But for the IWW, this was the end of something. It, it, it Immediately afterwards, basically, it was a new, big news story that made national headlines, of course, even the, even if it was tried, they tried to bury it. There was a great interest in the IWW. It was a major resounding defeat of the IWW that day, and, and it showed a sort of playbook for how to defeat them. It was a major defeat, even if it led to a little bit of a peak in popularity at the time. If I mentioned the Bisbee deportation to John McCain, would he know what it was? I'm sure he wouldn't. I'm sure he wouldn't. Even if someone told it to him, I'm sure it went in one ear out the other. I mentioned John McCain because he's a representative from Arizona. But anyway, it's a thing. Boy, Robert Green, the director of Bisbee 17, thanks so much for your time and well played with some of those responses. Cheers. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Thanks for talking. That was a great talk. Thanks for spending the time. You hit a point where you have to make a decision between what is right and what is legal. They are not always the same. And you must always do what is right. You cannot compromise with a rattlesnake. Those were the words of Walter Douglas. Talking with our World Cup correspondent, Ewan McCabe, earlier about the next football World Cup being in Qatar uh, in the Middle East. Dreadfully hot. And they're going to do it in the middle of the Premier League and you know, the Spanish football and Italian football. Uh, this news reached a rather animated and he's just a hilarious cat, actually. His name's Ian Holloway. He's a football uh, coach in Britain and he's never backward about coming forward. This is worth it, taking you to the news. Ian Holloway, when he heard the news that the Football World Cup is going to be in Gatta and it's going to be in June and July. Why don't they sack Seth Blatter and all of them lot, particularly Mr Platini? I know he was a good player, but he ain't very good at what he does, I don't think. In fact, I think he's useless. You can quote me on that. I honestly do. I think it's useless. How can you do that? Why don't we move the tournament? Because it's going to be too hot, Mr. Blair. What? I mean, come on, what's going on? Are they... F- is that serious? Are you deadly serious that we... So what happens to our football then and everybody else's football is playing for... Well, we stop for a while, do we? <laughs> oh, genius. Absolute magnificent, isn't it? What happened to the um, air-conditioned indoor arenas then? Bit too expensive, 25 of them, was it, or what? Don't start me on that. (laughs) Seriously, it has gone crazy. I think the world has gone completely on its head. Happy Christmas. You wait till I get home, I'm going to tell my turkeys it ain't... Don't worry, it ain't Christmas, we're moving it. (laughs) It's all right, you got some respite, you know? Oh, I've had a word with FIFA and we're going to move Christmas. It's no problem. Fantastic.